Hello. For LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. And we're coming here with a special on-the-road edition of our show this week from Park City, Utah, where we've gathered for the Sundance Film Festival. We've got a very large team of people, actually the largest the LA Times has ever sent to Sundance this year to cover the festival. And joining me to uh, kind of go over the uh, how things have been going so far, I'm joined by my colleagues. Kenneth Duran. Justin Chang. Dan Yamato. Amy Kaufman. And now Kenny... I'd like to start with a question for you. You've been to this festival a lot of times, and do you see it as, in essence, a constant, or is it always changing? Like, I'm, I'm wondering how you kind of approach the festival from year to year. I just don't want to waste my time. You know, that's my bottom line, and, you know, it's a hassle to get from the screenings. You know, theaters are far apart. A lot of struggles to get inside. I want to feel that it was worth it. I don't. That doesn't mean I'm looking for masterpieces. I'm looking for things that don't waste my time. And from that point of view, I've been happy this year. There have been a lot of very solid films. I don't think there's a deathless masterpiece here this year. But again, that's not what I'm looking for. And Justin, what's your take on this year's festival? The consensus that I've been hearing is that it's just an okay year. That may well be the case. I would probably agree with Kenny. I haven't seen any masterpieces either. Maybe one or two that maybe approach that. But... I feel like last year the consensus was an underwhelming Sundance, and it turned out to be the opposite of underwhelming. I think things like Eighth Grade and Hereditary and you know a lot of A24 movies, obviously, but also other things too, that RBG and Won't You Be My Neighbor, the whole the wave of really excellent docs last year. So I always kind of hesitate caution in terms of assessing whether something was an amazing year or a terrible year. It's probably somewhere in between as usual. Jen, what are your feelings about this year so far? I will say that to your point, Justin, it feels like every year going into Sundance, we're like, oh, is it going to be good? It's going to be bad. And then a couple days in, people are like, oh, it's another bad, underwhelming year. But the people who come here in this sort of capacity from the film industry, journalists, I feel like are jaded. And a lot of people come in with this attitude of, okay, Sundance, thrill me. And that has a way of discounting movies, like you mentioned, Justin, that will actually have legs and find audiences as the year progresses. So, I mean, I think I've had some luck in that many of the films that I've seen so far, I really responded to. The Farewell made me cry in my seat until the entire theater was cleared around me so that nobody could see me wiping my makeup off my face. I feel like I've um, had some powerful experiences. And Amy, I've been so excited because, you know, a lot of us have been coming back. Oh, people have this kind of like midland responses. People aren't liking things that much. You've been really positive about things because you feel like this has been a really good year for the documentary selection. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it has been a good year for the documentary. And I don't know why everyone's like, oh, it's a bad year for Sundance if the scripted films are worse. Like, um, hi, documentaries or movies. Thanks so much. They're also oftentimes better movies. This year, there's a lot of good docs that I've loved. There's one called Crosby about David Crosby. There's one called Ask Dr. Ruth, starring none other than the 90 and a half year old sex therapist who we all know and love. There's a great film called Mike Wallace is Here about the late broadcast journalist. There's just a ton that are getting a lot of attention that I'm really excited for people to see that I think could be as commercial as some of, you know, continue the commercial wave of Docs at the Box Office that we had this year. I know, Amy, the first few days of the festival for you, I know, were really consumed with reporting around Leaving Neverland, which is a documentary about two grown men with allegations that they, as children, were sexually abused by the pop singer Michael Jackson. And it became an international news story, this film. There was a lot of expectation leading up to the screening and then definitely a lot of talk after the screening. Can you talk a little bit about what the experience for you has been like working on that film this weekend? 
Yeah, I mean, coming into the festival, there was a ton of buzz about what this four-hour docuseries that's going to air on HBO in March um, was going to reveal about Michael Jackson, because as I'm sure everyone knows, there's been a lot of allegations about him over the past few decades involving child sexual abuse, all of which he was never convicted of. And this documentary features two men, Wade Robson and James Safechuck, who are both in their late 30s, early 40s, who spent a lot of time with Michael Jackson when they were boys, starting at age seven for Wade. And in this film, they detail just like these horrific things that they say Jackson did to them that they only later in life realized constituted sexual abuse. They thought they had a relationship with Michael Jackson, essentially, that they were in love with him. And as a result of the film coming out, Michael Jackson fans have pretty much been really fired up on Twitter, online, vehemently defending him. And so that just, you know, sets the stage for sort of a battle royale when the film comes out in March um, and how it will affect Jackson's legacy, I think. And besides talking to the director of the film and the two men making these allegations themselves, you, in fact, interviewed some Jackson fans. And tell me a little about that, because I think that's a really interesting sort of side of this story. So I've been inundated on Twitter. Um, my mentions are like absolute trash right now. They're just a little bit aggressive um, and saying I'm not a journalist and, you know, like, why would I just trust these guys from this movie? And so I thought, obviously, there's a strong contingent of Jackson fans. Let me at least get, you know, one of their voices in some work we're doing. And I spoke to a woman who lives in the UK um, who was a student. She was 26 years old. And she basically said she feels like it's her right and duty to defend Michael Jackson as a fan because he's no longer here. He can't do that anymore. Both of these men, this is a big sticking point for people, formerly testified on behalf of Jackson in his child sexual abuse cases. So people feel like, oh, well, they lied once. Who's to say they're not lying now? So she kind of talked to me about that. And now, Justin, you watched that film as well. And tell me about your impressions of it, not just as sort of a document, but as a piece of filmmaking. What what was it like to, to watch that movie? Yeah, and I think that's a really important distinction to draw a lot of the, I've been My mentions aren't as trashy as Amy's, but I've been getting some as well because I wrote about Leaving Neverland very positively. I think it's one of the standouts of the festival for me. And in fact, it screened the first full day of Sundance. And for me, it was like, wow, this is the the note we're getting off on. um, That's a very good note. I think it's an important distinction to draw because a lot of the attacks from fans who have not seen the movie yet are, does this movie show both sides of the story? Does it hold water as journalism? And I think there's a there's a tendency to confuse a documentary with saying that it has to be this objectively reported piece. And the movie makes no pretense at being that. It is a very, uh, one of the things that makes it so powerful, despite its two-part, four-hour duration, is that it suspends and immerses you in this harrowing testimony from these two families. And the families are crucial to it. And I would just say, too, that the only defense I feel compelled to give is see this movie, see this movie, see this movie. The movie speaks for itself very, very eloquently. The two young men, Safe Chuck and Robson, are very eloquent, which is startling when you think about what they're being so eloquent about. And as for the fact that Robson in particular, yes, testified on Jackson's behalf and denied any claims of sexual abuse back in Jackson's trial in 2005, that is addressed. It is addressed. It is unraveled. One of the reasons why the movie is as long as it is, but doesn't feel very long, is it takes you through that step by step in a way that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you, you would think something like that would defeat his case. It doesn't. It actually, the way yeah. you come out on the other side and you completely understand, I feel, best as anyone can. 
Right. A lot of the Jackson fans were saying, like, do you think it's an issue that you haven't seen this film and yet you've already taken such a strong position on it? And they were like, no, if someone is an established liar, why would I ever change my mind about them? I mean, you can't say that until you've seen it because the power of them sharing their emotional stories, the film doesn't really have any, like, juicy allegations that haven't been out there in terms of, like, the details of the abuse. What's so surprising about it is the way in which they convey it. Jen, I know one night here at Sundance, you were out KJing a kind of a makeshift karaoke party and some people there wanted to sing Michael Jackson songs and you sort of thought twice about it. Like, talk a little bit about what maybe this movie might mean to the legacy of Michael Jackson's music and fandom. Well, similar to how surviving R. Kelly has made a lot of people rethink their embrace of R. Kelly's art uh, and inability to separate the art from the artist, I think that's definitely going to happen in the case of MJ only on uh, such a more monumental scale given his impact in pop music. There were people who did want to sing Michael Jackson songs but hadn't seen the film and kind of wanted to do it in a provocateur kind of trolly way, which I chose to not allow for obvious reasons. I mean, even among the people who here at Sundance who have not had the chance to see this film, which only screened once, it was so packed, it was probably the hardest single screening to get into at this Sundance Film Festival. And yet people who haven't seen it have been totally consumed by it and frankly disturbed and conflicted over it. So it is the hottest button topic that we saw here this year and probably probably in many years. Now, Kenny, do you find that often here at Sundance that the documentaries are as comparable to the sort of like maybe the more high profile fiction features? And, and do you find sometimes they're, even the documentaries maybe are even more powerful? Yeah, I mean, if people ask me for advice about Sundance, I always say, if in doubt, go to a documentary. I mean, I've never seen a documentary here that I felt wasted my time. And the number of dramatic films I've seen that where I felt that, there's too large to uh, to number. So, yeah, I mean, this is, I think, the premier documentary. I know there's a truth or false car. There's, there's uh, True false in, in, in Columbia, Missouri. Yeah, there's an entire doc festival. There's lots of doc festivals. I think this is the premier doc showcase in America. And every year there's dozens of them. I see a big chunk of them and I'm never disappointed. Never. Were there any others that really jumped out of you this year? Well, The Living Neverland, as everything has been talked about, I think that's the one that's going to have the most lasting impact. American Factory was very strong, uh, kind of a verite documentary about what happened when a Chinese entrepreneur took over an American factory. Very vivid. I mean, there's almost too many to mention. The Dr. Ruth one, uh, One Child Nation, about the after effects of the One Child Nation policy in China. I just came from a documentary that really kind of blew me away that probably no one is going to see because it's tiny and it doesn't sound appealing. It's called Gaza. It's about life in Gaza. And it was very beautifully shot. It was very moving in a way I didn't expect. And this is way down the line of the hot documentaries here in Sundance, but it's wonderful. And I think that's the key to this festival in terms of docs. They're all good. And now, do you think that this year's crop of documentaries are going to have the kind of commercial impact that last year's did? Because with Won't You Be My Neighbor, RBG, and Three Identical Strangers, plus Minding the Gap and a few others, I mean, that sets a really high bar. Do you see anything you think is going to pop that same way? There's two of them I think will pop the same way. One is Ask Dr. Ruth. But the other one, you know, it's an interesting story because it debuted in Toronto kind of under the radar. But I think it's going to have a big commercial impact, which is a film Maiden 
It's a documentary about a group of women whose first crew of entirely of women who participated in a round-the-world race in the 1980s, and they are now interviewed, you know, 35 years later about the experience, and it just blows you away emotionally. And I think, you know, for a variety of reasons, Sony Pictures Classics that acquired it in Toronto, kept it under the radar. It's not going to come out till June. They're still, I think, keeping it under the radar a little bit. But I think once people see this film, they're going to tell their friends it's going to have a commercial impact. Here's a question. Do you think, do you guys think that Dr. Ruth is going to get that Oscar that she demanded when she came through our LA Times studio at Chase Sapphire, where Amy Kaufman, Amy was the first to hear that Dr. Ruth has a spot on her mantle for that Oscar. But now, did anybody explain to her that if the movie about her wins an Academy Award, she doesn't necessarily get the no, trophy? She, I talked more to her about this when I sat down with her for an interview. She says she wants the Oscar because it will allow the filmmaker and producer their entire life to have that credit attached to them. And she she said if she's going to do something like this, she wants the highest sort of recognition. And for her, it's just fun. She'd be 91 at the time and she would go and she promised that I can go with her. So I hope it happens. <laughs> <laughs> This year is the first edition of the festival under a new festival director, Kim Yutani. And so coming into the festival, there was a lot of talk about what kind of impact she might have on the program and sort of like what the overall feeling of the festival would be. And I think some of that, you know, she really has placed an emphasis on the world dramatic competition section, which often kind of gets overlooked here at Sundance. But I know also has really sort of put an emphasis on the diversity and representation and inclusion. that has been a real watchword here at Sundance for a very long time. And I think every year for the past few years, it just seems like they're sort of like emphasizing that even more and it's really coming out in the films. Jen, do you want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, some of the most sort of explosive movies at the festival this year have actually been from women of color filmmakers and I think it really has shown what some of that work is like leading to. Right. Well, you have a handful of movies that really took a lot of the thunder early in the festival, all from Asian American storytellers and starring Asian American leads centered around Asian American stories, but all very different within themselves. The Farewell, written and directed by Lulu Wong, based on a crazy story about her own life and her family, stars Aquafina of Crazy Rich Asians fame in her first dramatic lead role. And it's so powerful. 2013, I was editing my first film in Berlin, and my mother calls and very bluntly says, so your grandma's dying, she's got three months to live, uh, and you can't really call her or go see her because you're too emotional, she doesn't know, the family has decided not to tell her, and uh, you can't tell her. And so a couple hours later, my dad comes up with this idea that we all have to go see her, and why not have my cousin marry his girlfriend? and throw a wedding, be the perfect way to go and say goodbye to her. And so that ignited the start of the story. We have Hala by Minhal Beck, who cast Geraldine Viswanathan from the comedy Blockers, it also actually in a dramatic lead role in which she is also excellent. Um, Justin Chon's follow-up to his Sundance, previous Sundance film, Gook, is called Miss Purple. It's set in L.A.'s Koreatown, centered around... A kind of life that you hardly ever hear about even in real life, in the mainstream awareness, and that is the story of a Korean-American woman, young woman, who works as uh, a domi or a paid hostess in these sort of Korean, Koreatown karaoke establishments. Although that is in itself uh, a real character piece about two siblings figuring out how to pursue their own sense of self and own happiness as Asian Americans. 
And then also one of the bigger sales of the festival was the film Late Night, which was directed by Nisha Ganatra and written by Mindy Kaling. It stars Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson. Justin, I think, did you have a chance to see Late Night? Yes, I, I really enjoyed Late Night. And it, I believe, scored the biggest US-only deal in the festival's history, selling to Amazon Studios for $13 million just for American rights. And it, Kenny and I were talking about this. It almost seems to be filling the big sick slot this year, not to reduce the film to that or to reduce the big sick to this. It's a very effortlessly smoothly written and performed crowd pleaser, wonderfully performed by Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling, who also wrote the movie. She plays a so-called diversity hire in a late night comedy show writer's room. And she's the only one there who is not a white man. So... It's very, very funny um, and just clever enough, I think, about the industry that it is both satirizing and also trying to prod along in a more progressive direction. It's funny, it already imagines a somewhat more progressive reality than actually exists because you have Emma Thompson playing a veteran late night TV host, which we don't have a comparable female figure like that in, in reality. So that was one. Just to add on too, I mean, also in the dramatic competition, speaking of diversity, you had Native Son, which is Rashid Johnson's contemporized adaptation of the Richard Wright novel about a young African-American man, Chicago's South Side. Now it's very much the present moment and a movie that I don't think completely works but as an adaptation, it's a really interesting, uh, maybe when it kind of veers too close to the original story and the template, and this is a move, uh, this is a, a book that has been adapted several times before, maybe it becomes somewhat weaker thing. But for the first hours, I was really with it. It's really fresh, involving, harrowing, and funny, and suspenseful. I tried to see more of the world cinema section this year. I didn't see as many as I would have liked, but I really, really admired Joanna Hogg's movie, The Souvenir. She's a filmmaker who is very much acclaimed in certain, you know, for her work like Archipelago and Unrelated. I'm not as familiar with her work as some of my uh, colleagues that, who go to festivals in the UK, especially. So it was quite a big get, actually, for Sundance to get the world premiere of this movie, which is the first part in a two-part project that is about her early life as a filmmaker. In a way, I don't know any other way of creating work. It has to start from some, somewhere in myself. It has to start from a personal place. Um, and I just really enjoy that process of, of, of exploring a particular, either a point in my past or a particular preoccupation, and then expanding it out and then, and then fictionalizing whatever those ideas are. I, 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 I enjoyed that, and, and yes, this just seems to be how I do things. And in this case, she casts Honor Swinton Byrne as a version of herself, who's a young filmmaker growing up in the 80s and has her own experience of sexism as a kind of nascent filmmaker and also dealing with a drug-addicted boyfriend, so who's played wonderfully by Tom Burke. So that was a very good... Kenny, you, myself, and Justin all sat together during a Souvenir... And is that a movie that has been a standout for you as well? Not in a good way. You know, I mean, for me, Souvenir is, and you run into this, for at least I run into this at festivals a lot, movies that I'm fascinated to have seen, more interesting to talk about, maybe more interesting to write about than to actually experience. You know, I'm just wanting to be part of the great throng of critics who embrace this film, and it just, it's not happening for me. And I want to be sure to ask you as well, I know you interviewed, to get back to talking about Late Night for a moment, you actually interviewed Mindy Kaling for that film. <laughs> Emma Thompson was, when I was writing this movie and still is, my, my favorite living actor. And I've seen everything she's ever done. I've seen interviews that she's done. Um, and so when I wrote the movie, it was like, okay, 
if I want to act with Emma Thompson or write for her, I'm just going to have or write, you know, have her act as I wrote it. I'm just going to have to do it myself. And so I, uh, it's kind of like the way I do everything. It's my formula for how I get anything made, yeah. which is I just thought about her and just without ever having met her, sat in my room and started thinking about this world and how she would be so great in this this role, even though there really has never this has never really existed, and just kind of just did it privately for a while. I've been saying, I just wrote it like fan fiction. She was just very funny. You know, it's wonderful. I mean, we all know this. We, we, we see her on TV. We, you know, we, you know, we see her script in late night, but uh, to talk to her on the phone and to see how quick she is and just the funny stuff that just comes naturally to her, it's just a treat to talk to someone like that. And now, do you find that, I mean, it's funny, Justin sort of touched on this, that a movie like Late Night, that's sort of a essentially a commercial, crowd-pleasing comedy, in some ways gets almost like points against it for that fact here at Sundance. And is that something, What do you, how do you feel about that? If like a movie's not miserable enough, it somehow isn't worthy? Uh, no, you're totally right. I mean, that is what happens here. It really makes me weep, you know? I mean, those of us who see films week in, week out for an entire year, a film like this is so rare you know, a smart, funny film that actually people will like. It's not like there's millions of them that we can just toss them off and say, oh, another crowd pleaser. It's a smart, intelligent crowd pleaser is the rarest thing in, I think, today's movie world. And it just really disheartens me to see, you know, I don't mean around this table, but other people I've talked to who just say, well, yeah, I mean, people are going to like it, but, you know, what do they know? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I just have a different view of the film world and different things I'm looking for. And when we were together at the Souvenir, it was quite interesting. That was really a movie that I think there was a lot of expectation around. And in the audience for that premiere screening, the actress Tessa Thompson was here. She's on a, one of the juries here, I think. The actor Tony Revolori was there. The actress Alia Shawkat was there. And then uh, the filmmaker Jane Campion was there. She's actually on the jury that Souvenir is a part of. And Jen, you had brought up an interesting point to me that you feel like you've been seeing a lot more celebrities and sort of high-profile attendees at the screenings themselves and whether it's on purpose or not on part of the festival, it's really helped to amplify the feeling that this is a community, this is a place where things are happening. What do you think it means that we keep seeing sort of notable faces in the audiences here? This year we saw filmmakers like Boots Riley and Ava DuVernay attending the festival and and really publicly using social media to support other filmmakers here. You saw folks like Tessa Thompson supporting other other people's films and showing up at screenings. And there was this real sense this year, I feel, that the film community of filmmakers and even like A-list, so to speak, stars were coming here for love of the film, not because they were showing up for some like free Ugg boots or to party until like 4 a.m. at Tau. It almost feels like Sundance is sort of reclaiming its space in a way from the onslaught of gifting suites and swag suites and, you know, celebrity endorsed party scene events that really took over in the, I don't know, aughts. I remember back in the day seeing like a throng of people mobbed around somebody on, on Main Street. And I was like, who's that? Who do they care about so much who has come to this esteemed independent film festival? And it was Paris Hilton. And I think Diddy was at the same thing. And I was like, huh, I wonder how many of the world cinema entries these guys are going to go check out before they leave. 
Yeah, you know, this was the first year that I've seen Sundance actually officially fight back against that. There's a big section in the guidebook. It said, don't patronize the places that are not official sponsors. And there's a little logo. Yeah, yeah, there's a little logo that you can get if you're an official sponsor. And it says, we're legit. This is the first time they've ever done this. They've usually politely ignored the interlopers. And this year, they're kind of taking a fighting stance. Not that that's going to stop anybody from going to get like a free, I don't know... But it's interesting that the, I wonder why they decided after all these years, and I think actually after a lot of this has happened, it seems to be ebbing why in this year they decided to fight it. And I want to be sure that we sort of get plenty of time to talk about some of our other favorite films of the festival. Justin, I know you and I both share a real passion for Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale. I had a chance to interview Jennifer Kent here at the festival. Well, I always start from a strong feeling and, and an idea. And I guess the idea for this was... You know, I was really disturbed by the level of violence in the world and just watching things on a world stage play out. And I wanted to tell a story about love and and how, you know, ask the question, is it possible to love in in darkness? And and I guess The Nightingale kind of came into being through that, those ideas. To me, that movie is really interesting in the fact that it premiered at the Venice Film Festival last fall, where quite notably, Jennifer Kent was the only female filmmaker in the main competition at the festival. She and was really, also the only filmmaker who was heckled by a sexist Italian journalist who called her a whore, apparently, as the credits rolled. And happily, that did not happen this year, where where um, the movie played in the spotlight section. Although there were a lot of walkouts, because it's a very, very violent movie, um, which I don't normally go, go for, but I think it's just extraordinary filmmaking. Well, tell me a little bit about that. What is it about that this movie and the way Kent grapples with screen violence that for you is different? I mean, there are moments in here that I think you could find comparable to some of the bloodiest, you know, like it's not, she's not going Mel Gibson or anything, but there it's pretty savage. This is a 19th century revenge Western set in the Tasmanian outback. It's about an Irish convict woman uh, played by Isling Franciosi. And the journey that she goes on along with an Aboriginal man, a black Aboriginal man, to track down the man who did something very, 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 very terrible. Um, in the first, the opening scenes of this movie, I heard, you know, somebody, just a small throng of people left the theater and I heard one of them say, nope. <laughs> and I did not blame them one bit. I stayed. Professional duty, but also dramatic interest compelled me to stay. It's a really subversive movie I think in the way that it seems to subvert and also satisfy some of the conventions of revenge retribution kind of driven cinema and it's extremely political Um, her two heroines are this white woman who's been horribly abused this black aboriginal man who's been horribly abused and the way that she treats them as her heroes which you could say tokenism it's not it's absolutely not it's rooted very much in this very very I think rich and detailed historical tapestry that she weaves Jen, one movie that I haven't had a chance to see yet, but I know you saw and did some reporting on was Loose, uh, which was directed by Julius Ona. And can you tell us a little bit about what that movie is about and maybe why it's been a movie that's really been generating a lot of conversations here at the festival? Yeah, Loose is such a fascinating movie. And I think one of the, the biggest narrative conversation starters here this year, it's directed by Julius Ona based on a play by J.C. Lee. It stars Kelvin Harrison Jr., who is not only one of the most talented actors of his generation, but one of the busiest and most prolific Sundance talents in the last like few years. Luce is the one that I think could really be one of the most, most urgent conversations that people will find relevance and timeliness in. 
Kelvin Harrison Jr. plays Luce, a teenager in Arlington, Virginia, who was adopted by wealthy-ish, well-meaning white liberal parents, played by Naomi Watts and Tim Roth, from Eritrea, where it is suggested that he was forced into a life of a, a child soldier and forced to do some really terrible things that he is now, we presume, he has now moved past. And he has become now the valedictorian, the model student, the uh, star athlete, the beloved and great son and, and friend to everybody in this community. He's a shining light of black excellence in this community. And the film is a thriller that deconstructs all the ways in which the crushing weight of those expectations externally placed on him can have really, really problematic and explosive results. Looking, I remember reading the script and looking up to Luce in a weird way. And then I started to ask myself, What's it like to kind of be plucked out of your environment and then suddenly change who you are and then be praised for it? And then be praised to be, to, for being someone that you're not? And so that was like that question that kept like bothering me <laughs> and, 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 and started making me kind of re-examine my own life and challenge myself and my experiences. And I think that's what drew me to get my, my end into the character, into the story, and then... Yeah. And it is so well told with these trappings of, of genre storytelling that really serve this story and these characters and these performances. And it has to be said, Octavia Spencer is sort of the fourth leg of this very interesting table at playing Luce's African-American history teacher whose perspective on how much he cannot fail and how much he means to this community as an example to his colleagues and his, co his classmates is something that is a responsibility of his. And it leads to some really fascinating conflicts that shift in such fascinating ways over the course yeah, of this film. I agree. Uh, and I, I think for Harriet, it's about excellence and it's about holding him to task and um, she's a kingmaker, and everybody wants to be king except Luce. He wants to be king on his own terms. And for Harriet, that is, um, that's not possible uh, because he represents all of the youth, and that's not um, a ma the mantle that, that Luce wants to take on. And uh, I think that was an interesting conflict to play opposite these two. And especially him, because you just never know what game Luce is playing. Kenny, did, did you see Luce? I did, but I'm still thinking about it, quite frankly. It's a very interesting film, and I haven't really uh, processed it completely yet. Are there any other movies that you've seen that you would want to shout out? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of very different films that I enjoy that, you know, again, one of the things with Sundance is that they pick every film individually and just some films just don't get part of the conversation, you know, where people don't go or they're not interested. So sometimes I latch onto these and I find them satisfying. Gurinder Chadha's new film, Blinded by the Light, you know, she's uh, best known for Bend It Like Beckham. And this is, again, just a warm-hearted film about a young man in, in Britain who has his life changed by Bruce Springsteen's music. And uh, there's some great Bollywood-inflected musical numbers uh, along to some of Springsteen's music. And I just, those I thought were just a lot of fun. And I saw uh, the other film I wanted to mention is a very different film that, again, I'm kind of still processing. It's very unusual. It's the kind of thing I would not have thought I would cotton to. And I have literally run into no one else who's even seen it, let alone liked it. It's an Australian film called Judy and Punch. It's set in kind of a uh, fantastic Elizabethan England. Very strange, very full of cinematic energy. And uh, I just was really taken with it. First time director. And I just said, wow, this is interesting. 
And I want to be sure, there's a, a couple of movies that I, I want to be sure that we talk about. One of them in particular, and I think it just shows the speed at which this festival works, and that there was a movie that premiered on Friday night. It was really like one of the hottest tickets here. It was a really much talked about title, and now it really just seems lost to the sands of times here on Tuesday, and that's a movie called Honey Boy that was directed by Alma Harrell, and it stars and was written by Shia LaBeouf, and it's based really on his own experiences, his relationship with his father, and frankly, his own relationship to his own fame and it seemed like that movie just hit this festival really hard but then we've had so many movies since then and I don't think it's had a sale announced as of when we're recording this and I don't know that's part of it too. Jen, I think you had seen Honey Boy as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, Honey Boy is uh, such an a fascinating movie to watch as a Shia LaBeouf fan and or watcher. You know, if you're aware of who he is then it's and, and frankly his background, his brushes with the law his sort of, you know, this this very turbulent path that he's taken from child star on programs such as Even Stevens to action star in, in films like Transformers and now uh, Beyond in which he's taken on some very, very like interesting and transgressive art film roles. But this is deeply personal to him. He said at the premiere that this was a project with Alma Harrell, who he'd worked with before, but whom she makes her narrative feature debut here quite impressively. But this started as uh, one of uh, the steps of his rehabilitation. It is deeply internally reflexive. It is painful. It has some amazing, amazing performances by Lucas Hedges playing the sort of 20-something-year-old out-of-control Shia, who in the movie is called Otis for some distancing purposes. Lucas Hedges, by the way, so amazing, such an amazing talent. But I did not really know that he was capable of so accurately mimicking Shia LaBeouf's mannerisms, his way of talking, this sort of like way that Shia LaBeouf sort of walks as if he's being propelled by a roiling sea of conflict within himself, you know, as he's walking down the street to get Starbucks or whatever. Um, he nails it. But Noah Jupe, who is the 13-year-old young star uh, who does such tremendous work playing essentially the younger Shia as a child star who leaves his, you know, Hollywood TV set with his father every night and goes to live at their home, which is on the outskirts of Los Angeles. It was kind of weird because I never thought of Otis, like the character, as Shia. Um, you know, I could see, like, I, I, I saw him as a character that went through the same journey as Shia. And, you know, I would, I would see, like... I would take certain things that happened to Shia but make them uh, Ota it, what would happen in Otis's version. Um, but it was, it was really interesting because actually Shia really helped with um, creating Otis as obviously he experienced it, but he didn't do it in the way where he used his own experiences. He did it in the way that like when you were playing in the scene with him, he, he was, you know, really open to anything you were you were doing and he really helped you create your own version of of him in a, in a way the difference between his work life as a child and his home life is so vast and the relationship that he has with his father is very complicated his dad is himself a very complicated but charismatic man whom LaBeouf clearly has a lot of affection and a lot of sadness towards and and issues with and is it's really interesting to see this sort of personal bearing of a soul essentially in the same 
time, in the same time frame as that person is going through it. So I think it's a really tremendous piece of personal expression that has some really incredible performances in it. And I, I think people will really respond to it when it finally comes out. But now tell me a little about the experience of being in the room for the premiere of something like that first screening of Honey Boy. I think it's one of the things that we as journalists kind of struggle to translate and explain to people is, and it's the thing that draws us back here year after year. And I think why the Sundance Film Festival is such a special place that give us some sense of what the emotions in that room were after everybody watches this very emotional movie. They all come out on stage. Shia LaBeouf is there. He's giving a very sort of like heartfelt speech and explanation of the movie. What, what was that like at that first screening? The Honey Boy premiere was similar in some respects to a lot of films that premiere at Sundance in the Eccles, this sort of the big highlight stage of the big premieres every year. In the film, you could feel this very emotionally charged atmosphere of the people who were experiencing the story in the room. And that really held over as the credits rolled and as Alma Harrell took the stage with Noah Jupe, so emotional herself that she had to take a moment to sort of process and wipe away her tears. And she did this all with a microphone in her hand. And it was so overwhelmingly emotional in that room to see her experience that while the audience is also themselves still reeling from the film. My favorite moment from the premiere is that as Alma Harrell is taking the stage, needing a moment Noah Jupe holds her hand and it was the most pure act of loving support, unshowy loving support. And it was really um, a special thing to, to see. It's interesting. I recall I was at the premiere of the movie The Report. After the movie's over, they bring out, you know, the filmmaker Scott Burns comes out. He brings out the cast, Adam Driver, John Hamm, Annette Benning, And they're getting a warm, gracious round of applause. But then they brought out the subject of the film, Daniel Jones, who's played by Adam Driver in the movie. And then the audience leapt to their feet for the standing ovation. It was a, felt a little bit like a trick, like what people do often with documentaries when they bring the real subject out and then the audience kind of goes crazy. But there was something, I mean, this movie is sort of a, a fast paced political thriller about everything that Jones went through to write and see released a report that he wrote for the U.S. Senate regarding the CIA's program of torture. And so it was like, I think people did, felt very genuine when people leapt to their feet for that. But Justin, when I was sort of leading up to talking about Honey Boy, you had a look on your face like you thought I was talking about a different movie. What did you think <laughs> I was leading up to? Oh, no, that was more just like, oh, don't call on me. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I can't remember, but can I take the opportunity to very quickly? Yes. Shout out to Clemency. Chinonye yes. Chukwu's uh, drama starring Alfred Woodard as a prison warden who oversees inmates on death row. And, you know, I, I was hoping this would be good. I mean, Alfred Woodard is, I think, most criminally underemployed actresses, and this is just a beauty of a role. The subtlety of not just the performance and the performance of Aldous Hodge as a man who is on death row for ha having been convicted of killing a police officer, although he maintains his innocence, the restraint of the entire movie just kind of blew me away. It's very much about how what it's like to live in a place, to work in a place that is just suffused with death and the constant threat of death. And the movie, without, I think, unduly sensationalizing anything, gives you a really mesmerizing sense of just the process of how that works. There's this clinical feel, but it, it never overlooks the emotional fallout for everyone who is working there. Really hardworking, well-intentioned professionals who are the most qualified people to deal with this, and yet, how can you deal with this? It's a really, really good film. The other one, 
is The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which I look forward to seeing again. I think this is one of my favorite films in the dramatic competition. It's going to be released by A24. And this is Joe Talbot's movie about two black men in San Francisco. One of them is Jimmy Fails, and he's basically playing himself. He also wrote the screenplay. But this one goes about that subject and what it means to have a home, to lose a home. I felt just a really fresh angle, a very meandering. I got this weird, it was like Bay Area Kawasaki vibe off of it, just in terms of the, yeah, I mean, that sensibility. I mean, um, and Kenny, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you're, he's a, he's a Kawasaki fan, as am I. But just in terms of like, the, some people were also saying Wes Anderson, although I think this sensibility is much less arch, even though it's very intricate in its visual detail, it's beautifully shot. There's this sort of vein of absurdist humor and very this very earnest kind of sympathetic emotion that underlies it. It's just the, the rhythm of this movie. And again, like a lot of movies here, and you hear this a lot, maybe it's a little too long. Oh, that could be shorter. And I don't really like to play that game sometimes. I'm like, you know, festival goggles, festival rhythm, it's different. Maybe you watch it closer to home and you'll, you know, there are certain things like, you know, Leaving Neverland does not strike me as too long for, for a minute. So it really does depend. And this, I, I really like when I come to Sundance or to any festival, movies that have the freedom to meander, that are not just trying to meet that 90 minute deadline. Because this is, you know, what is this place for if not to let our minds and, and yeah, and maybe even our attention spans wander from time to time. And just one last movie, I want to be sure to to mention that it's, I think it's one of the few titles that I think every one of us here in the on the LA Times team that has seen it, we've all liked it. And that is Britney Runs a Marathon. <laughs> yes. Directed by Paul Downs Colasio. And it stars Jillian Bell as a woman who in New York City who has sort of like been living a bit of a party girl life and it's sort of running its course and she's wondering kind of where she is in her life. I just have a loose sense and she starts running. And somehow in the course of that, she decides she wants to run the marathon. And that really becomes this sort of journey of self-discovery for her. It's funny that it comes on like sort of a slob comedy at first, and then it becomes something much more emotional and heartfelt. There's a lot of real surprises in that that film. Kenny, I know you came back from the movie Pleasantly Surprised. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you fall in love with this character. It's an unlikely character to fall in love with, but the actress who does it just does a brilliant job. And as you say, there are twists and turns. It turns out to have more emotional resonance than you would expect. It's got the funny stuff. It's got a lot of that. Apparently, they said in the Q&A afterward, there's a lot of improv that they threw in. They're all comedians. So some of the funniest lines were improved on the set, but it really is moving and you feel like you've watched a real person evolve. And that's a rare thing in any genre. In a comedy, it's especially rare. Yeah, and to just what Kenny was saying earlier about the tendency to maybe heap disdain on crowd pleasers at a festival. I mean, I always have them. There are good crowd pleasers and there are bad crowd pleasers. And Brittany Runs a Marathon is a very good crowd pleaser. And I was too pleasantly surprised by just the subplots, the attention and care that it takes with these in terms of developing the, the secondary characters as well. And it's about Brittany running a marathon. She's got a crummy job. She's overweight. She's, you know, doesn't. She's... Uh, really, she has no romantic lo- love life or anything. Poor so self-image. Very, very poor self-image. But she also has this, she's played by Jillian Bell. She has this terrific sense of humor. And so, which kind of ebbs and flows as she goes on this journey to improve her health. And she joins the running group and gradually works her way up. And so to wrap up our talk here, Amy, do you want to tell people where they can find you online? At Amy K in LA. Jen? Find me on the interwebs at at Jen Yamato. You can find me, Justin Chang, at Justin C. Chang. Kenny? And I am simply at Kenneth Curran. And of course, I'm at Indie Focus. And so for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>